Hello and welcome to the SAMOP Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Cody with us. Dr. Cody is currently an Assistant Dean for Clinical Education and a Professor of Internal Medicine at Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences, as well as a Site Evaluator for the Commission on Osteopathic College Accreditation through the American Osteopathic Association. Dr. Cody is a retired Colonel of the United States Army with over 30 years of service. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Cody. Well, thank you for inviting me uh, uh, this evening. So... It's a privilege to be interviewed, and uh, hopefully I can bring some information to, for the questions that the group may have. Yes, you have um, a very extensive career with the Army um, and as a physician. So do you want to give the listeners a little history of where you started to where you are now? Sure, I'll be glad. So for those listening in, I uh, first, uh, when I graduated from the graduated from college, University of Maine, uh, the, my, my uh, advisor uh, told me that the, the Army had a special research, had special research uh, programs in the 1970s where college graduates could uh, enter the, uh, the Army, because I, I first was with the Army, and work and research several of the research institutes as a research uh, technician and uh, had subsequently go on to, and go on to graduate degrees, I should say. So the, uh, to, to kind of make a long story short, I uh, entered the Army and I was uh, stationed at the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. In those days, it used to do high-altitude work, uh, heat and cold research, exercise physiology, uh, and also uh, some uh, some uh, psychological work on uh, initial work back in those days. Uh, that gave me lots of opportunities, uh, both in high altitude work and exercise physiology, and uh, was participant in several papers, the technical papers. And one of the papers specifically opened the door when my pre when my preceptor that I was working with at the research to suggest I look at medical school. And at that time, uh, based on my uh, knowledge of the osteopathic profession because my wife had worked at the osteopathic hospital in Maine. Uh, I applied to osteopathic medical school and went to Kansas City. Uh, th- those days had a different name, but it's now known as Kansas City University of Medicine Biosciences. Uh, so when I when I when I was accepted, I finished my three-year commitment, uh, entered medical school, and to discover that the financial burdens of tuition were crushing, and so I went back to the Army and, and was lucky to obtain an HPSP scholarship uh, and obtain that and subsequently was selected for a residency which I performed at Fitzsimmons uh, Army Medical Center which has now been uh, been uh, bracked which which means closed and uh, that that internship uh, or residency in internal medicine uh, in uh, subsequently led to uh, payback time at a, uh, at Fort Riley, Kansas. At a in those days, it was a second delivery hospital. I then reverted to reserve status for about uh, three years. It actually was four years when I was with the practice, but at that time, I was called up for the uh, Persian Gulf War back in 1991. And during that time, my previous chief of, uh, of cardiology talked to me and said, "Why don't you come back and do a fellowship?" And uh, so I decided that I would uh, 
come back and do a fellowship in nuclear medicine uh, at Fitzsimmons uh, and then subsequently stayed for the remaining portion of my career. I had a lot of opportunities uh, during my fellowship. I, I, you were encouraged to do research and apply for grants, so I had the ability to apply in time to do that during my fellowship for uh, breast cancer research, for imaging, and then I got transferred to Madigan and had a very long career at Madigan heading up uh, uh, a nuclear medicine service, uh, chair of radiology, acting chief medical officer, uh, being selected to be a consultant for the Surgeon General's, the Army Surgeon General, and one of my projects that brought brought uh, highlighted was instituting the PET CT scanners throughout the uh, the Army Medical Centers back in the early days and putting that putting that in place in the, in the departments of radiology at Brook Army Medical Center. To read many other areas, and part of that academics of being in an academic teaching medical center, teaching medical students and residents includes uh, publishing and being active. So it gave me a lot of opportunities to be involved with a lot of a lot of research projects at the medical center, and in addition to publishing and being involved as a regular author in the fundamentals of diagnostic radiology, which I've uh, been a been an, a subauthor in for multiple years. And uh, that subsequently, with all that experience, both in academics and leadership, uh, worked for the Surgeon General, heading up one medical center. Uh, I then retired and uh, found myself retiring in the middle of the Great Recession, 2008, and at that time decided to uh, take a temporary job as a civil service in, in internal, internal medicine. But after working there a year, I uh, was selected to be a senior physician uh, executive with the two-star command, the, the now, now closed Western Regional Medical Command. So that kind of tells you the whole scope of my military and civil service career as uh, I tried to abbreviate it. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, then things change and I was recruited to come to Pacific Northwest University to be the chair of medicine when the, when the inaugural chair was trying to uh, had come back out of retirement. We talked, so I came to PNW. So that's it in a nutshell. How do you like your position as a professor now? Like, that must be quite different from being in the Army with a lot of the responsibility and you said moving around a lot. Did you transition well to being a professor? Uh, well, good question. Uh, technically, uh, when you have a military uniform on and you're in a teaching medical center, you are essentially like a, like a professor about wearing a uniform with additional requirements to maintain your physical fitness and running and plus going to the field when required. Uh, the, but the publishing and teaching and uh, that's, that's just a matter, it's almost like which suit are you wearing in the day. So I did not find the transition um, challenging uh, to, uh, because if you remember I went from active duty many years, civil service, and then came to a university and because of the nature of the Walter Reeds, the Brooks, the uh, Naval Medical Centers, uh, the Air Force Medical Centers, where you, uh, there is teaching faculty, that is part of the culture. So a lot, it's not unusual for a lot of um, career military teaching faculty for medical centers to transition to university systems, if anything. Uh, they're well seasoned and they, they've had major management experience which gives them a, an advantage over when you're trying to learn it from the outside. 
much. How did you decide to pursue internal medicine right out of medical school? Another great question. My, I loved a couple of things I, I, I loved at the time. I loved cardiology during my, in, during my uh, uh, third, fourth years. And I also liked uh, women's health, OBGYN. Uh, I liked, just liked that, that, that whole environment. I initially thought I was going to be an OBGYN physician, and I, I was selected for, during, uh, for residency to, to go to, to, to an OBGYN residency at Fitzsimmons. But upon arriving there, which is not unusual for some, for some students, somewhere, I think I was a late bloomer, somewhere towards the, the end of fourth year and during that first, uh, first year, I saw that uh, OBGYN was, had some other things in it, and it was a high-risk pregnancy, and high-risk pregnancies um, just, I, I realized I didn't have the stamina for the high-risk pregnancy and potential uh, maternal deaths and fetal deaths that if you're a high-risk pregnancy, uh, taking care of a lot of the high-risk pregnancies. And at the time, the chair of medicine invited me to switch over and be one of, one of the uh, medicine residents. Again, uh, the, the system has changed. You've got to understand you've got to put yourself back in the early 80s. Many things have changed mm-hmm. since that time. And uh, that was the right place at the right time. And because they happened to have a slot, that opened up. But that does not usually happen. Yeah, it's like meant, meant to be. Yep. And then why did you decide to go into nuclear medicine, professional fellowship? Well, uh, nuclear medicine at the time, uh, and this again was early, uh, early 90s, uh, was, had a lot of research involvement. So nuclear medicine originally came out of internal medicine. And so it was very, it was very common for nuclear medicine physicians to have first done the internal medicine residency and practiced a bit and come back to do nuclear medicine because there was a lot of physiology. We didn't have a lot. The ultrasound was in, this, was in its nascent days. A head CT scan to do just a head CT scan, which is uh, takes literally minutes, used to be an hour and a half procedure in the early days of CT. So nuclear medicine was a true physiological way to assess. Uh, renal function, organ function, and still is utilized these days for backup, uh, for a lot of backup procedures. Uh, MRI was still just starting an experimental stage. Nuclear medicine had been around since the 40s and 50s and had developed quite a bit. So, And there was a chance to research and lots of computer work with it, which, uh, which appealed to me because, again, I had been in the research background. I had worked with computers when I was in research to, to quantify material. We had to write our own code in those days at the research institute. We didn't have software uh, suites that we could buy off the shelf. And so when you had a, a, a deck digital uh, PDP-11, you would just had to sit down and start write code and then also take the instruments, go down to the, la- go down to the biomed lab and uh, you know, get a circuit and you had to go back and build a circuit and put it into the instruments to get the data. So it was truly in the uh, early days uh, where technicians, when you were working as a technician, uh, you really, they relied on you to do a lot of things. And nuclear medicine for me as a physician then appealed because of the computers and having to learn all, all that and the physics, and it was a natural fit. And also patient care because you're treating patients both diagnostically and therapeutically with radioisotopes. Yeah, that sounds really very interesting. Can you think off the top of your head anything currently that would be equivalent to going into nuclear medicine at that time? Because it sounds like a very exciting, cutting-edge um, specialty to be a part of. Well, uh, everything in medicine changes. So uh, nuclear medicine is now part of really, it was always a, 
there was always a distant relationship with radiology. It's now been amalgamated, incorporated into radiology, uh, partly because you have to have so much cross-sectional imaging, and it's a better fit than the older days. Uh, I was grandfathered in, had to go back and learn cross-sectional imaging with CT because of the PET-CT things. But truly, nowadays, you have to do the prerequisites to do a radiology residency and then do a nuclear, a nuclear fellowship. Um, and nuclear fellowships and nuclear medicine physicians are typically tertiary care based uh, because you're dealing the, the type of procedures you utilize in nuclear medicine for therapies require quite an extensive team. You have to have a dosimetrist, a physicist, possibly a radiochemist, and so that type, those type of things, there's not too many of us in the, in the, uh, in the profession um, and uh, at the same time, I liked I liked the endocrinology portion of it, so I did the a uh, lot of thyroid work, and uh, so it was a nice fit for internal medicine, nuclear. Nowadays, it'd probably be like becoming a radiation oncologist, uh, but that's again that's yeah. external beam versus internal beam. Yeah, very interesting. Do you have any advice for students who are thinking about choosing a specialty? Well, the biggest advice I can give to uh, is to basically as you as you're learning medicine. Is uh, is based find what really interests you and you feel passionate about. So as you go through your rotation, especially at third, fourth years, you start some things start appealing to you. And I somebody asked me, how do I know that something this specialty is really something I'm going to want to do? And the best thing I can tell you is when you really uh, feel passionate about a specialty, but it's five o'clock or six o'clock at night, you're going, is there already five or six? I mean, I got to go home. I'm having so much good time versus some, some rotations and some specialties is like, wow, you know, this feels like a long day, you know, when, and, uh, for myself, for instance, urology for me, uh, started at five thirty in the morning and I just, I just knew right away that urology was not something when I was doing my first year of uh, residency uh, rotating that, uh, that I did not find urology fun. General surgery is okay, uh, but you find what really, what you really thrive in and where, where you're, what I call your groove. And, you know, I, I, whether it was intensive care, because in our day we're trained as hospitalists, and the trend back in the 80s and 90s was to basically train internists as outpatient physicians, and which now it's kind of flipping back to the hospitalist mode and so I was uh, out of sync with that with that piece of it, but I loved intensive care, and that's what I practiced up in up in uh, Minnesota, and with the army in my early years before I transitioned to Glamessa. And to me, it was like you know I'd be up there hours, and it was I'd lose track of time. I mean, it was just I really liked what I was doing. That's really good to hear. Switching gears a little bit, uh, again asking for advice for medical students, do you have any suggestions on how we can develop our officership while in medical school? Great question. So the first thing is I want to thank all those listening for, for you know, agreeing to, uh, to serve in the future and serve at this point uh, forward. And those of you that previously served, thank you for your service. But again, uh, you're ver you represent a very small uh, segment of society that goes into service. I, they say now it's only about 1% that wind up serving out of the total population. Biggest advice for, for becoming an officer is, and a big, I'll tell you, is, uh, and I, this is something I lived by because during my early years as a research technician, I was not commissioned. That we all had to be sergeants. And if you changed your mind, yeah, you could you could get a commission, but you were no longer allowed to research. It was kind of a strange time. But officers, 
you earn whether you're an NCO or an officer, you earn the res you earn respect. It's not given to you, and you earn your respect by how you treat folks, walk the talk, follow through, take care of the people around you that are more uh, that are more vulnerable. And so I had I had zero tolerance for watching somebody uh, um, utilize or how can I say abuse their rank and. Um, that was not something that I tolerated during my watch or at times whether I was in the field. I just, people, everybody needs to be treated with respect. And when you treat people with respect and as an officer or a senior NCO, you'll find that people will vastly to you and they'll, they'll start, they'll trust you. And so you're doing that is how you hold yourself and conduct yourself every day. So uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and I like to say is that when you're a physician in a community, or you're an officer, whether you're on the clock saying, oh, yeah, I'm working today, or I'm off socializing, people notice all that. And uh, if so, if, uh, if once you receive a commission through uh, and your commission through Congress, uh, it's something that every day you learn. And if you ask people around you and ask for their help, and I tell all younger officers, find a really good NCO who knows their stuff and is really got to and ask for their assistance. And that's a, a good NCO when a, when a junior officer asks an NCO for assistance and guidance, whether it's uniform or, or procedural stuff, it goes a long way. When you're in the hospital, it's the same thing. When you know something, you know, you know, offer it, be ready, always be prepared. However, if you're at, if you don't know what it is, and say, hey, uh, how do I find out about this? I don't know it because people see through that very quickly. And I tell you. Having been in the field, and uh, it's really important uh, that they have confidence in you, and that confidence includes not just uh, saying go do this or to go do that, but it's that confidence of saying, "Hey, what's your opinion? Uh, I need your feedback," and then making the decision and and backing them up. So, being an officer is something we learn with time, and uh, like I said, you've got to walk the talk. Yes, that's great advice. Thank you. So I. I'm personally curious just about how your experience was doing research while you were um, part of the Army as a physician, um, and if you found that to be challenging or if, did you find it overwhelming at times, I guess? Did you feel like your research ever took away from your practice as a physician or as an um, officer, for that matter? Well, good, good question. So... Um, when you're a resident, you're doing residency things. My first couple of years, when I was at a small, a smaller hospital, a secondary level, a community hospital. So you, when you once you leave the medical center, you, whether it's a place, a hospital that's maybe 50, 60, 70 beds, maybe a small emergency room, you're busy learning your post. Your, in other words, getting into practice of the medicine because of what you learn as a resident. So during residency, you've got all your attendings around you to give. Uh, give you uh, opinions, that first couple of years, you're focused on practicing. Uh, I only got back, I could not do research in the private world when I was up in Minnesota. I didn't have, I didn't have the time. I mean, it was just, it was just seeing patients, keeping up with lab stuff. I was on call uh, all but two days a month. So, I mean, it was just, it was a real, it was very intense. When I came back to the military and was stationed at a military medical center, and whether it's Army or Navy, the medical centers have an infrastructure. 
And so the infrastructure includes research departments to help support you as statistician. So you are seeing patients, you are doing doing your your regular routine, but you've got the infrastructure to help you at research. To give you an example, I had a research grant that I moved over from uh, my first base, Fitzsimmons to Madigan. In the first couple of years, that infrastructure was not it was not as robust as it is now. So I wound up just practicing a lot, and I was, did not give a lot of time to that research portion. But you find research is, clinical research is collaboration with other specialties. Family medicine is collaborating with surgery on maybe a pro, on a project, a couple of residents, and you keep tabs of, of some of the data, you get it approved. And so it's, uh, you've, got all, you've got support to you around you, but you can't always do the same thing when you're in a smaller hospital. It's just a lot harder to get it done. And so biggest thing is, is the infrastructure support. If, if you could go back to being in medical school, is there anything you would do different? Wow, well, that, that's a good That's a very good question. Um, I think the, if I would have gone back, gone back to medical school, uh, the, again, it was a different time. But if I could do anything different, I think the, you develop a knack of how to study, and I had to learn that towards my throughout my first second year, and I got much more efficient. So if I could do anything differently, I think I would. But you don't you only know that through what works right. for each individual. Uh, the I I really liked a lot of the rotations. Uh, I had both rural and uh, rotations in the city at the medical centers because that's there was a lot more of them in those days. And it was more an emphasis on inpatient care versus outpatient care, but I I think I really learned I really grew up as a physician or really learned to stand on my uh, my my two feet was after residency where you go to a smaller place and you don't have all the specialists around you and you've got to really utilize your physical diagnosis skills and uh, you know I made some phone calls this time that I didn't know the answer and I'd ask for advice and I remember having a, a case of rickettsial disease that landed in my lap and uh, you know the, you know putting somebody on chlorophenicol in the ICU that was pretty scary in those days so uh, it's always good to reach out and have the phone we didn't have we didn't have the computers the uh, hand phones we have now yeah. so go back to medical school learn to ask questions and also how to present that's the biggest thing because whenever you present well it impresses folks I want to share about your experience being um, active duty physician. I saw you went on a few tours like you were in Desert, Desert Storm. How, how did you deal with the stress of being a physician in those times? Well, good, great questions. One of the things uh, that Delta is you develop, a, develop your uh, network around you. You, I'll say men and women have, quote, that, that, that buddy principle where you have somebody you can uh, lean on. Uh, physical fitness, uh, I did a lot of running to keep the stress under control, especially, uh, and also because of the chemical biological suits. But uh, that physical fitness and taking time, that was my time where I could literally zone out running and uh, give myself some time to clear my head. Uh, having some colleagues where you can bounce things off each other or whether it's, you know, this 
the old joke is there's always something to complain about somewhere else, but at least you get, you know, uh, you basically have folks you talk to. Is So basically not being an island, but having, having uh, developing relationships with folks that you can chat with and bounce with as far as understanding what, how to get through the day. Because everybody's stressed. People have, they have their worries about their professional life, their personal life. And it really helps. doesn't mean they're good, good buddies, but they're good acquaintances. And that's what you develop in the service. You get to meet lots of folks and a lot of acquaintances. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really in its own way, its own small family. How, was, how did your family deal with you being gone on tour? Another great. Uh, families, well, uh, my, uh, nobody likes the, the, the isolated tours or when you're away. Uh, I was away from periods of time as as little as three to four weeks at a time to as much as you know months. Uh, the part is your spouse, your significant other are in sync. Um, you communicate as much as you can. And the biggest thing I noticed, which I remember, is I was when I was gone for months for the Persian Gulf War, and I was actually stationed somewhere else in the United States, but the I had very young children, and they were, I think they went from two till eight, and I remember coming back home and saying, well, you know, why don't you go, you know, uh, Matthew, why don't you go do that? And they look, he looked at me right in the eye and says, is that okay with mom? In other words, I lost my 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 place, and yeah. I, what I used to prepare and tell folks, whether they're men or women, like when you go back to that family unit and you've been out of that family unit a bit, and the other one has been both mother and father to the to the uh, to the family, you got to re you got to re reintegrate yourself into that uh, into that family unit dynamics, and uh, that's been that's been hard for some folks. Uh, luckily, mm-hmm. I saw it and recognized it, and it's okay. I said, yeah, I'll go ask her, see if it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the wise thing anyway. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, okay, um, I think that is all the questions I have. I don't want to keep you too long. I appreciate your time already. Um, well, my career is somewhat a little bit atypical because I had so many tangents in it. But that's, that's the, i got to say, that's one of the strengths of being a military physician. After you get your original, your your initial residency, whatever it's in, and develop and, and get yourself, after you've been in a few years, and uh, maybe moved once or twice, uh, the opportunities are what you make of them. And sometimes the opportunity will knock and say, I don't want to do that, you know, okay. But the ability to transition from one type of practice to another to uh, learn management skills and then take the specialized courses. It really gives you uh, a lot of variety and I find that physicians that keep challenging themselves and reinvent themselves every five or six years stay pretty fresh. They don't tend to burn out. So again, you guys, I, I compliment you guys and you guys are off to a great start. That wraps up our episode with Dr. Cody today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in.